Blog Talk Radio. Well, good evening or good morning, everyone. This is Sean. I'm the host for the People's Medicine Show. This is a show I've been doing for a year or two, and I um, schedule a couple of hours on, on Blog Talk Radio every month. So I do this normally on the first Thursday of every month, and I missed last month. And I decided I'd like to just keep the theme of this month's show sort of the same one that I picked for last month. And uh, I stumbled upon ideas and it's real simple. And it's, it's fun to share them and to, um, I, I was going to use that word ruminate, uh, but um, think about together, you know, I'll have a sort of a group meditation. Um, so I talk about herbal medicine. I talk about healthy living. I talk a lot about, uh, esoteric topics of culture and the culture we have, the culture around us. I was trying to adjust the description of what I talk about on the show. And it's, um, I usually will begin with some herbal medicine topics and then we'll drift out from there. So uh, if you want to communicate with the show, add content, be called in. I think I have the feature now where I can call in a guest but it would be fun to uh, try. But if you'd like to contact me, I'm available at peoplesmedicineshow at gmail.com. And my name's Sean, S-E-A-N. My last name is Mernin, M-U-R-N-I-N. You can find me on Facebook. That's the one place I will announce when I am doing a show or maybe uh, a month where I don't want to do a show. So last month, I didn't do a show. I was sort of processing some heavy grief and some oncoming grief. And um, I didn't go to Toastmasters either, and I just allowed myself to rest. So one of the topics I picked on tonight also to discuss is um, how we treat and experience depression in natural, healthy, restorative ways. So I allowed myself to just rest and take time off. And it was funny because last week there was a, a part on my car that needed to be ordered and it, it had to do with the tire and the car wasn't safe to drive. And it, it felt great just to be let off the hook that I didn't have to use my car to go to work. And I had uh, four or five days where I didn't even press myself to go have fun with the car, you know, just to, to sit still, experience a lot of silence, a lot of stillness and just um, not be rushing around all the time. And so yesterday I really woke up in such a better mood that um, there was, you see, you know, I think that's what depression, what a lot of people would describe it or even use that word. Some people use the word seasonal depression. So I um, just woke up yesterday and I was like, wow, it's not another consecutive day of just waking up and feeling pain and feeling doom and feeling that just something's off. And um I think we all have to go through these dry uh, walks throughout life where we're not feeling warm and fuzzy and uh, it's mostly just pain and discomfort and unfamiliarity. I love that. Unfamiliarity is when I encounter something new, I'll um, express it in some painful way. And it's just um, my own lack of open-mindedness. What does this have to offer me? What am I going to learn from this? So I think uh, we are... (laughs) the source of our own pain in so many ways, the the way we perceive new experiences. And um, that is funny that we talk about it. I I don't always seek new experiences. I I want comfort. I want fun. That's what I seek. I want um, expansion 
<laughs> I want all the good feelings. So a lot of times uh, wanting something new is very unfamiliar. And, and there's a lot of, they call it growing pains. And um, so I'm learning a little bit more about being silent and just having a, um, a daily meditative practice where I could just, you know, unplug from everything. So let's go ahead and uh, start this first uh, clip. I only have two clips that I pulled for the two hours of radio show. So I'll, I'll be sure to be taking a lot of pauses throughout the show while I regroup. And um, so I'm going to play a, a quick, sh short one-minute clip. And perhaps I'll, I'll speak a little bit after the clip, or maybe we'll stay silent for a while. Well, my thing is everything... In life, here, here's the way I look at everything. Everything you're just in a giant bakery and it's crowded, yeah. And you got to pull your ticket, yeah. And once you pull your ticket, you can go sit down or go out to the car and read a book or yeah. go do whatever. But if you don't pull that ticket, you ain't in line. That's a great. That's you're a great that bakery. For a, you should create a fine book on that subject. Pull that ticket. Pull that ticket, damn it. So otherwise, oh, and there are many people. Ooh, um, some of some of whom I live with, who kind of go, I've been in this bakery for two days, and yeah. I go, yeah, but if you don't pull a ticket, you're just here. Yeah, that there's a sort Good of point. people have this sort of satiation thing where it's like I walked into the bakery. Right now, what it's yeah. like, if you don't pull a ticket, you're not in line, and there is no difference between you being in the bakery or you at home in the bathtub. Yeah. See, Yeah, so that was from uh, Adam Carolla's Home Improvement Show, and he opened his show with, uh, you got to pull the ticket and uh, get in line, or else you're not really um, going to have a, a bite of that donut, unless I suppose if someone else is in line with you, you can ask them for a bite of their donut that they pulled the ticket for and they paid for. So there's a lot of, um, I wanted to just, I wish I could use, the, I could find the right word that I wanted to describe, <laughs> but um expand upon that, you know, that we all want things in life. And a lot of times we got to go in the bakery, we have to go pull the ticket, and then we still have to wait in line. And is there any promise that there's going to have that donut or that loaf of uh, marble rye or whatever you want when once your ticket's pulled? No, there's no guarantees. I suppose you could look at the glass case or look at their inventory and say, yeah, I, it's a short line. I could I'm definitely going to get myself a loaf of that bread. <laughs> so I'm looking at it as um, I want to um, develop a piece of land and I want people to help me with a bulldozer. So I, I've told them, hey, whenever you, you're ready, I want you to uh, work with me and help me to bulldoze some land. And then at the same point, it was just like there's a lot of people before me that also want this person's help. So I'm just going to keep friendly and not, uh, you know, and maybe look at the look at the score card up on the wall. Okay, uh, it's been this many months, and I talk to them, and the people that run these bulldozing uh, companies, they really have a lot of challenges because they do real heavy work, and the machinery breaks often. And I'm pretty sure that the people that fix the bulldozers in my town make probably more than the people who are running them and operating them and, you know, paying the bank payments on these things. So there's always, um, like, if I don't want to 
uh, stand in line in the bakery, I can go um, to the food wholesaler and buy all the ingredients and start my own goddamn bakery. But (laughs) I think it's fun, though, because anything we want in life, we just have to uh, pull the ticket and go for it. That's why it's funny, because the second um, clip that I pulled for tonight's show has to do with Shane Heath, and he's a real talented artist. He's been in so much stuff. He's been in um, so many different technical fields, and he's also a talented portrait artist. And I heard a recent episode of Tangentially Speaking uh, with uh, Chris Ryan and Shane Heath, and he created uh, an herbal drink called Mud, Mud Water, and I haven't tried it or tasted it yet. And so I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about like the way I look at like powdered herbs. So I think I'm going to let uh, Shane talk, but um, maybe I'll just take a break and we'll get back to um, the Shane Heath interview. Cause I, I think I pulled seven minutes to listen to from Shane and really wonderful person who's got his hand in so many different pots and he decided that he was an everyday chai drinker. And he um, started finding out about these powdered herbs like powdered mushrooms and powdered cacao. And, um, and he designed his own daily drinks because he was sort of, I suppose, an anti-coffee person. He was drinking chai as an everyday beverage. And now he you know, in, invented a new beverage but in this interview, he talks all about like just getting things off the ground. Here's someone who's probably gotten 10 or 20 different projects off the ground. He's about 35 years old. He's been in all these different technical fields and done so many wonderful little projects. And a lot of times these projects, uh, this is what I got from his interview, that they have um, a lifespan and they, they reach a peak and then they go down. And that's sort of like the, um, the rhythm of of his businesses that he does that he, they start and they don't really sustain so it's really fun to hear him like on his 20th business and he's still on something really sustainable coffee substitute and that i'm i'm really excited about using powdered herbs lately and even though i am a simple herbalist i really like to just use one herb at a time as other herbalists who are seem more confident to be able to just like throw a bunch of powders together and taste it and see what they think. See, see how they taste, see how they like the taste or how they like the feeling of it. But I, I think a lot of the powdered mushrooms, you really, you don't really need much. Like I've been using a, a powdered lion's mane and I, I think it's maybe a quarter of a teaspoon and it's like a full day's amount for me. And I was told if you use some of these powdered mushrooms later in the day, you'll actually be too stimulated really to wind down. So it's fascinating to realize that there's um, a lot of other really gentler type stimulant plants instead of coffee. These are all things I'm exploring. Another um, herb that I'm uh, learning about recently is um, pine bark. And it's processed in a way sort of like hashish, where I think they powder it and then they sort of sift it. So only the phyto-rich parts of the powder are in the um, remaining bark. And same thing, you might use a one-sixteenth of a teaspoon or one-eighth of a teaspoon every day. And it's just like this real tart type of astringent drink. And it 
um, dilates um, blood vessels and really just keeps everything wide open. And I've been getting this vibe that, yeah, this is a really, this may be a really important thing for um, um, men to participate in because I get to really um, ally myself deeply with eating any pine products. Um, there's so many different things uh, from pine that have to offer us, but I'm fascinated with what I've been reading about. Um, so I'm going to read uh, a monograph from Nootropic Expert. And he, he is one of the main people who um, led me to like want to really experiment with uh, some pine bark powder. So I, I'm hoping that he, um, he, he, he will be able to um, fill us in on there's um, a pine bark product called pignogenol, and there's so much, re you know, I'm doing the air quotes, research about pignogenol, and it's just basically the same old, same old in the herbal industry where they have to form a specialized product and then cast doubt upon every other pine bark is crap and has no health benefits, whereby there's thousands and thousands of people that use pine bark every day, but it, it, I, from what I'm researching of it, about this is I think less is probably more just using something consistently in a really small amount is really going to be the benefit whereby if you take a tea, a, you know, a teaspoon or a tablespoon of pine bark, it may actually make you physically sick. <laughs> We're using a, a real tiny amount, like one sixteenth of a teaspoon of the powder or one eighth of the powder. It really have a, a dilating effect. So what's causing me to be personally attracted to, oh, let me experiment with pine bark powder, is I used a lot of aspirin in the past month or two because I get these uh, seasonal type headache um, seasons where I just seem to always be having a headache every few days. And it tends to happen in the spring and the fall. And I've met other people and aspirin basically is the only thing I've ever used, and it does give me some relief, but I, I do not want any more of the uh, side effects. So I've played around with willow, and it really doesn't um, match the efficacy of just plain aspirin. And um, so maybe I'm going to continue to um, try willow in higher and higher doses, or also maybe just use a real small amount of pine bark because I think I am going to be attracted to the flavor of the herb. And that's been basically my path as a, an herbalist when I've really gotten serious in these past few years is I tend to only um, use certain herbs that taste good and feel right to me. So I, I think it is fun that I'm doing the Shane Heath clip later because he talks about how he developed this, um, this cacao drink that also has medicinal mushrooms in it. By just, you know, going with gut, like, I like this, I like this, I like the way it feels. So I'm trying to find the monograph from Nootropics Expert. All right, nootropicsexpert.com. And I think I'm going to put in Pine Bark, and we'll read his monograph on what he says about it. All right, so pine bark extract. Okay, extract, pignogenol. So maybe there are other properties in pine bark that if they're not sifted out, 
um, maybe they will give you more uh, gastrointestinal uh, problems. So I'm still sort of in the reading phase. I've not started using any form of pine bark on a daily, you know, basis. So this is where I'm at with my study of pine bark extract. I'm going to read this monograph. Uh, pine bark extract has been shown to improve ADHD, decision-making, concentration, focus, memory, and mood. Pine bark extract. And then he has pignogenol, trademark in parentheses, is standardized. So it, it looks like he is reading, he is repeating pignogenol-based information. Okay, so it is a standardized extract of French maritime pine bark. This pine tree is native to the Mediterranean region. The extract of the maritime pine bark called pignogenol contains 65 to 75% proanthocyanidins. Procyanidins. Uh, Professor Jacques Mosquillet of University of Bordeaux, France, was the first to study oligomeric proanthocyanidins, OPCs. <laughs> Professor got his inspiration from reading about Jacques Carter's 1535 expedition up the St. Lawrence River. Cartier's crew was trapped in the ice and dying of scurvy. The crew survived after native Iroquois gave them spruce beer brewed from the bark and needles of pines growing by the river. Professor Mosquillaire speculated pine extracts in the brew contained vitamin C and flavonoids that helped the crew's recovery. In 1948, the professor isolated the first OPCs from peanut skins and patented his extraction method for, of isolating OPCs from the pine bark in 1951. In 1965, research was begun by Charles Hamath, the founder of Horpfaff Research in Berlin. He developed a water-soluble extract of the same French maritime pine tree calling his uh, extract pignogenol. Throughout this post, I'll be referring to pine bark extract or pignogenol. Assume I'm talking about the same extract. Okay, so the author is um, um, just applying all the research that's been done specifically on pignogenol also to pine bark extract. All right, so he cleared that up. Uh, as a nootropic, pine bark extract is used primarily to increase cerebral blood flow. Other uses in using pine bark extract for the prevention of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, ADHD, high blood pressure, osteoarthritis, chronic pain, and erectile dysfunction, ED. On a molecular level, pine bark extract helps with oxidative stress, membrane damage, DNA damage, inflammation, and glycation. Here we'll investigate pine bark extract's value as a nootropic to optimize cognition. So pine bark extract helps neurotransmitters. Pignogenol helps prevent decreases in dopamine and norepinephrine. <laughs> and the glutathione and GSH disulfide reductase ratio. Neurotransmitter problems which contribute to hyperactivity in ADHD. Cerebral circulation. Pignogenol helps boost blood flow to and within your brain by increasing nitric oxide, which helps dilate blood vessels. 
helping repair and maintain the health of the lining of blood vessels. Neurodegenerative diseases, pygnogenol prevents accumulation of oxidatively damaged proteins and may reduce the risk of diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and Huntington's. So I'm not sure this is quite a monograph. Uh, I'm gonna read the overview and then probably just take a break and maybe I'll come back to reading it at a later time. All right, so the overview, pine bark extract is a unique nootropic supplement derived from the bark of French maritime pine, pineish tree. All right, so he's being very specific that it's all this research is from a specific maritime pine tree. Pine is pinaster, which is native to the Mediterranean region. Pignogenol is a patented form of pine bark extract, which is standardized to 65 to 75% procyanidins. They're also found in high concentrations in a wide variety of plants, including apple, pear, grapes, chocolate, wine, and tea. All right. Pine bark extract helps protect your brain from DNA damage, inflammation, glycation, membrane damage, oxidative stress. Pine bark can also boost cerebral circulation, providing the blood flow needed to bring nutrients and oxygen to energy-hungry brain cells. By increasing activity of nitric oxide, which dilates blood vessels, the active polyphenols called proanthocyanins in bark extract easily cross the blood-brain barrier. So how does pine bark extract work in the brain? Pine bark boosts cerebral blood flow, one. Pine bark boosts cognition. Neural hackers report that supplementing with pine bark extract or pignogenol has a significant effect on memory, focus, decision-making, and mood. And research has verified this in a clinical setting. In this study, 60 participants aged 30 to 55 volunteered to work with researchers. Diet, alcohol, and lifestyle patterns, including exercise, were controlled. Half the group received 50 milligrams of pignogenol three times per day for 12 weeks. The other half simply followed a healthy lifestyle. After 12 weeks of pignogenol supplementation, results showed a 16% increase in mood, an 8.9% increase in mental performance, and 13.4% increase in sustained attention, and a 30% decrease in oxidative stress. A 13% increase in attention span may not seem like a big deal, but the National Center for Biotechnology Information reported that the average American's attention span has reduced from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. This decrease in attention span can have a profound effect on productivity and quality of work produced. So supplementing with pycnogenol could, could be the simplest way to dramatically increase your productivity and income and get that next promotion. <laughs> so how things go bad, poor cerebral blood flow, inflammation and free radicals can damage your brain. And one of the ways this manifests is memory loss. 
Left unchecked, it can develop into serious neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. Cognitive function declines, all right? Heavy metals kill brain cells from the inside. Free radicals destroy neurons and synapses. Anxiety, depression, and moodiness increase. Attention, concentration, and memory declines. Poor cerebral circulation causes a domino effect in the brain, affecting many critical processes. Memory, cognition, and decision-making all suffer as a result. All right, so um, pine bark extract. So I'm going to stop there. And um, so he cited one piece of research that, that had some very dramatic effects, and they measured 50 milligrams per day, three times per day, for 12 weeks. So that would be um, uh, approximately a three-month experiment. And that's kind of cool, but um, that's quite a bit of pycnogenol. <laughs> so maybe, you know, applying that number um, to using the extract powder would be a so I've, I've read some of the uh, product reviews for pine bark uh, powder, and it, it's fascinating to, to see that people are at such a small amount, like a quarter a teaspoon. So I'm going to uh, take a break from talking for a few minutes, and I will be back.
Okay, so so to sum up, I got interested in looking at pine bark powder as an alternative to help me to use less aspirin when I'm um, experiencing these seasonal headaches that I get. So the topic of um, that I was sort of bouncing out of was uh, treating depression naturally with rest, but also increasing circulation, whether by exercise or all kinds of um, different body works, could definitely um, increase circulation. And so I, I think pine bark ec extract powder may be a very useful thing for me, and I can't wait to come back and report more about it. One of the herbs that I was talking about on a previous show that along the series, um, same vein was um, adding saffron into my foods. And I've been unsuccessful. I haven't really uh, thought of um, putting the pinch of saffron in with my rice. So also, it's kind of fun that I'm uh, featuring certain herbs on the radio show that I am um, remaining interested in. And it, it's kind of fun to have that cumulative effect of um, doing maybe 10 or 12 shows a year and maybe having 10 or 12 new, new plants that I'm learning about. So I haven't made any, so I just wanted to give an update on saffron that I really haven't um, reported any kind of benefits from saffron yet. And I'm just trying to be organic about it and add it to my foods as I think of adding it to my foods. So I've gone through this too with uh, adding shiitake mushrooms and adding seaweed to my food. So going real gradual, but it is funny though that I'm I'm jumping all over pine bark and I'm still really not done integrating saffron as a regular part of my diet. But I am excited about uh, pine bark, the possibility that I may use a lot less aspirin um, when I start using. Um, pine bark powder. So um, that's something I totally t wanted to uh, feature on the show. And it was funny because I was looking at Mountain Rose Herbs uh, and saying, oh, I wonder if they have anything that they could talk about pine bark. And it's not something that's sold from, they're like, hey, pine trees are everywhere. Just go out and powder it yourself. I don't know um, what herb companies will offer commercially prepared pine bark powder. It seems to be mostly in the nootropics uh, supplement field where they're interested in. And if you, you know, a quick Google search and you'll see there's like products from bulk supplements that have uh, 1,000 reviews. And it's funny when you look at these product reviews and some of them say, oh, the reason there's so many product reviews is the, the company offered to give a free uh, product to anyone who posted a product review. So I guess that's an investment that a lot of these supplement companies will make is, um, oh, let's give away a thousand free products and we'll get a thousand reviews. And I guess it adds up, you know, it gives their uh, product um, more, it, it just forms a marketing cascade where they'll sell more if there's a thousand reviews for the product. But um, so I guess a lot of the reviews when you read through, you know, for Pine Bark, uh, powder on the bulk supplements uh, product page um, are legitimate that people have been seeing for years and they, they like it. And it, it, 
it really makes me wonder if we're going to experience a lot less Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and these um, brain-type plaque diseases in the future because more and more people are discovering that having a diverse diet, which includes a lot of um, mushrooms and, you know, plants of all different kinds in their diet is going to um, perhaps have an, uh, an epidemiology number that there'll be a lot less of those diseases in the future as more and more people uh, add these to our diets. So it, it's fascinating to see that, you know, that we vote with our consumer dollars and um, it appears that CBD enriched foods are totally going to be, you know, a reality because people want them and people are jumping all over certain things. So it'll be, it'll be kind of cool though, to, to see what the health statistics are um, 10 or 20 years from now when people have been using uh, things like lion's mane mushroom uh, regularly. I'm, I'm really curious to see if um, it, it, it's kind of weird, though, to see that, oh, are we always tracking disease in our culture? But, yeah, I think we don't need to really look at the newspaper. Do we know anybody who's ever died from Alzheimer's disease or suffered dementia for years? And that's enough. We don't have to uh, look really, you know, go that deep and look at epidemiology reports. But they are kind of cool, you know, that there's a lot less drunk driving and a lot less um, – opiate overdoses in these states where they've um, allowed people to use cannabis um, legally. So it's fascinating to see that, yeah, the world is changing. You know, people really, you know, the facts, some facts about plant medicines are just indisputable, especially not that the fact that they always work because they don't. A lot of plant medicines don't work for people. And, but if they don't work and don't give them side effects, that's better than a drug that doesn't work but does give them side effects. So that's the simple math that a lot of people do when they want to use a plant before they reach for a drug. So it is kind of cool, though, that um, I was raised sort of in the medical um, tradition, the medical and scientific tradition. Oh, go to go to a doctor um, once a year and get a checkup, you know, have them check all your numbers and a lot of people that live really long lives never um, go get a yearly checkup. It doesn't really extend people's lives when you look at it. When you look at the numbers of all people that go get a yearly checkup from their doctor live longer. Perhaps there's um, certain conditions that will be caught, but it doesn't seem it, more often than not. It seems like people go to doctors and they they get uh, they find things that probably might have cleared up on their own. <laughs> But um, I am really just loving being an herbalist, that per- a person that says, hey, it all starts with the food I eat before any herbs. And today I, I listened to a, a, a local radio show and the, the DJ is so cute. She, she often says, oh, what are you cooking today? What do you got? And um, today I made um, um, beets in the blender and they're so yummy. And I'm going to um, probably let them in, uh, stew in the refrigerator, sort of like sauerkraut. And um, I can't remember the name of it. It begins with a K. But, uh, yeah, I'm having chopped beets today. And that's, what's, that's what I'm cooking. So I wanted to um, talk a little bit more about um, another 
way that people naturally treat their depressions. So I, I, I took a class at the New York Botanical Garden probably four or five years ago, and it was a horticulture therapy class. And this was one of the books that they suggested. It's called, um, it's an old book. It was um, really cool, too, that um, this stuff's been around for a long time. So this is copyright, 1960, and the book's called Therapy Through Horticulture. And I'm going to read um, just the first part of um, Chapter 2, and um, it's really cool that horticulture therapy really has um, a, a, it's becoming a lot more popularized today that people go out and do and there's just a beautiful effect on people when they go out and discover um, their garden or the park near their house or the woods or maybe taking a few days off from work and hiking really far into the wilderness but there's a lot of places right now where you could just walk for 10 minutes and you'll be in a still forest you know, you park your car and it's a 10 minute walk and you're in the middle of, um, you know, deep silence, 10 minute walk. And you could be in the middle of a beautiful forest. So um, something to think about, but I'm going to read some of this. It's really cool that it goes back. Okay. This is chapter two, how it began. The therapeutic value of gardening was discovered more or less by accident. It was at one time customary for indigent hospital patients to be required to work in payment for the case that they received. Kitchen gardens and herds of cows were maintained by many hospitals to supply fresh produce. And here, such patients were obliged to work as soon as they were sufficiently recovered. It was soon noticed that they frequently got well while wealthier patients remained ill. In the early 18th century, gardening was found to benefit the mentally ill. During this period, the attitude toward these disturbed people was gradually changing. Instead of simply confining them or treating them by pure, purely physical methods, physicians began to adopt a program of, of morale treatment that released patients from responsibility and provided them with diversional activities. Horticulture pr proved ideal for the purpose. Patients were given projects in the garden to stir long dormant interests. The physical activity involved in growing plants and the personal satisfaction in their harvests brought gratifying results. In 1798, Benjamin Rush announced that he was convinced that digging in the soil had a curative effect on the mentally ill. Hospital staffs in Spain as early as 1806 emphasized the agricultural and horticultural activities were beneficial to mental patients. And Daniel Tzavin, writing in the American Journal of Insanity in 1845, recommended keeping mental patients busy at some trade or on the farm. He maintained that the exercise and diversion kept them from dwelling on their troubles and were of extreme importance in their successful treatment. Outdoor labor in the garden, on the grounds, or on the farm was used as one method of treatment at the Pennsylvania Hospital in Bethlehem and other hospitals in that state. It was soon discovered that the program 
should be strictly therapeutic. There was a danger of exploiting patients, and it was found that the economic importance of their work should not be overemphasized at the expense of other values. So that's really kind of cool that, um, you know, far, work farms, it, it sounds like something that, um, that some people might pay, pay for to go and recover. And I love that um, they found that, you know, that was really cool that the wealthy patients that did not have to work for their um, hospital stay uh, often had less recovery rates from why they were in the hospital. And really pretty cool um, that um, this goes back uh, 100 years. We're looking at 300 years. No, um, 1795. Yeah, so the, the earliest date they mentioned was 1798. But yeah, this goes back over 200 years where um, the scientific method even observed that, oh yeah, people that work around plants are getting better than people that were wealthy and did not have to go outside and get their hands dirty in the soil. So I really love um, that um, the, the facts are the facts are the facts that um, plants often do um, help people. What I loved um, taking at that uh, horticulture therapy class was um, they were showing the different facets that um, some people, you know, still enjoy um, plants in a therapeutic way without touching the soil. There does seem to be this um, magic that once they touches the dirt, that um, they get the so a lot of times uh, people are never ready to get that far. So maybe uh, cutting flowers or, um, or cooking a vegetable or any kind of, um, I'm, whoa. Um, yeah, so I, I was mentioning uh, taking a walk in the forest and maybe just setting a timer and saying, okay, in 10 minutes, I'm going to walk in the forest and then you know, when the, when the bell goes off, I'll sit for five minutes and then, uh, you know, walk back. And that's less than 30 minutes um, to be able to go and totally um, disconnect from the automobile or the, the ride home from work or maybe even the ride to work, you know, leave one half hour early, uh, park near, near, near a footpath or near part of a forest that you're familiar with because I, I suppose that would be a lot of people's fear that, Oh, I don't want to get lost in the woods. <laughs> so I'm just trying to um, talk through things. Why, how would you go about um, going to take a forest bath on a regular basis? So I think I spoke and I'm going to come back after a break and I'll play some of the Heath uh, clip from the tangentially Speaking show.
All right. Yeah. So I was um, doing a quick search to see if uh, Willow is also, uh, if there's a correlation of using Willow and increasing cerebral blood flow. And I saw something about swimming and I thought I'd go ahead and read it. And it's uh, from Willow Bend uh, Nursing and Rehab. And this is their write-up on swimming. Uh, five surprising reasons swimming will increase happiness while aging. It's no surprise that taking the plunge at the local pool has been a favorite form of exercise for older adults. It's easy on joints, reduces the risk of injury, and improves cardiovascular strength. But there are other advantages to swimming as we age. Studies show that hitting the pool is just as beneficial to the mind as it is the body. Here are the five reasons why you could feel happier if you swim for exercise. Eliminates the risk of falling. Along with swimming, the most common form of exercise for aging adults is walking. By adding swimming, older adults can develop strong core muscles that improve the balance control. In short, adding exercise in the water will improve your performance on land. Improved balance creates more confidence when walking, and that peace of mind makes for, for a happy person. Builds brain power. Swimming may not turn you into a genius, but it can make your brain work more efficiently. An article in the New York Daily News referred to a study conducted by the Howard Center at, of the University of Western Australia School of Sports Science that suggested that immersing the body in water to the level of the heart increases blood flow through the brain's cerebral arteries, thus improving vascular health and cognitive function. The results of the study showed a 14% increase in blood flow to the middle cerebral artery and a 9% increase to the posterior cerebral artery when test subjects were immersed in water. Relief stress. In an article written by James Thornton, this master swimmer and psychotherapist describes swimming as the alternating stretch and relaxation of muscles while simultaneously breathing in a rhythmic pattern. That echoes the movement of many forms of yoga or muscle relaxation exercises. Swimming in open water can be a great stress reliever and an opportunity to make great memories with people who share the same interests, added Scott Hansen, executive director of Lake Ridge Senior Living. Author Therese Borchard added that swimming stimulates brain chemicals that foster the growth of nerve cells Exercise also affects neurotransmitters such as serotonin that influences mood and produces ANP, a stress-reducing hormone which helps control the brain's response to stress and anxiety. Okay, waves of depression, all aerobic workouts release endorphins while helping to block stress hormones and produce serotonin that can relieve depression. What Borchard said, however, swimming is particularly effective at shrinking panic and sadness because of the combination of stroke mechanics, breathing, and repetitiveness. It's basically a form of whole body moving meditation. Immediate sense of accomplishment. There's no delayed gratification. A swimmer can see the distance, the calories burn, the toned body, and the improved technique directly following a round of swimming. And that motivates a swimmer to return the next day. If you are looking for a form of exercise that can remain a part of your daily fitness routine as you age, consider swimming. 
It improves balance, increases brain function, relieves stress and depression, and acts as an effective motivator. And that's worth diving into. So that was a really cool thing because I was on the, um, the theme of, yeah, let's increase cerebral blood uh, flow to, um, to um, keep someone that's in maybe a stagnant form of depression, you know, um, and so I'm, I'm really happy to find out that most people that do experience any form of depression, it goes away. And it is kind of fun to um, um, wake up every day and fun we wake up every day we go to work we have to feed people that we're responsible for we have to feed our pets we have to uh, keep going depending on how uh, not depending not depending on whether uh, we feel uh, a little down in the dumps or not so uh, I was really all right so I think I'm gonna um I'm going to let Shane Heath talk about how he, <laughs> I, I jumped around and went all over uh, Shane's uh, intro, but he's a really fascinating person that he uh, appears to have been in about 10 or 20 different businesses, and he's a talented portrait artist, and he has all these different projects, and there's not too many uh, podcasts that really stay with me, but this part at the end where he was talking about just start it. You know, if you want to start something, don't worry about it being perfect. Um, start it off messy. If you, if, and it, I loved um, the way he discussed when he started this beverage company, he was like, yeah, I found, I moved, I started discovering mixing cacao with um, powdered mushrooms is really yummy and fun. And, he was like, I'm starting the company, and he, whether he was ready to or not, he did it. So uh, this is Shane Heath. He produces a drink called Muds, Mud Water, and it's like a cacao powdered mushroom drink. And something I'm kind of um, happy is around, and there's people like this doing really cool things like this. So I'm going to let Shane talk for the next seven and a half minutes. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. I'll um, come back in a little while. But yeah, so during that time, I was drinking a bunch of chai in the morning. That was like my morning ritual. And I was always, you know, researching different compounds and ingredients. And so, you know, my kitchen was just full of different things that I was trying out. And I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about this, but when I, was, when I moved to L.A., uh, I was taken aback by, like, I was going out at night, and just a lot, the cocaine culture is pretty strong here, and I was just, like, another kind of moment where I was, like, why are people doing this, or do they really want to, or is Mm -hmm. it just kind of this cultural um, thing, and I read this article about, in, I think it was in Germany, in the nightclubs, there's, like, this one club that they're essentially, like, replacing cocaine and alcohol with cacao, so people were snorting cacao and people were drinking it too and these elixirs and you know cacao has mood and energy properties to it so um so yeah i bought some and you can't buy like a gram of cacao like you buy like a pound or a kilo i have this bag of cacao and i was just bringing it out just kind of as like a joke really i'd bring it out to parties and friends are like oh like you want a little key bump and i'm like no i'm good you want to try some cacao and they're like what why are you doing that i'm like why are you doing that? Yeah. And we just kind of like have this fun conversation 
don't snort cacao, it's terrible. <laughs> it, it burns. No, it's no real payoff. But in the end, I had like a bag of cacao at my house. Yeah. And so I put it in my chai and stirred it up. And I was like, this tastes great. Mm. Kind of like smooths out some of it and also has some benefit to it. And so that was kind of the first V1. You know, it was mm. like I started mixing in cacao and then. I read about turmeric. I was training jujitsu a lot. I was always sore and achy mm, and it was like right. anti-inflammation and the chai has black pepper in it, which pairs really well with turmeric. Right. Um, another good thing about chai, I mean, chai in and of itself is just an amalgam of a bunch of ingredients. Right. So just adding things to it just makes sense, you know? Right. Um, so I added turmeric, some more cinnamon, and then the mushroom, uh, like listening to podcasts opened me up to mushrooms. And Paul Stamets. Paul Stamets, you know, I was listening to Tim Ferriss and he was talking about Four Sigmatic a lot and yeah. my mom actually still to this day works for a company called Monterey Mushrooms so oh, I was always okay. like mushrooms were always so keyed into that yeah I was yeah. always keyed in and they don't grow the mushrooms that we use but you know we always had mushrooms for dinner and it was I was very comfortable with it and so it's like I'll try some of that you know like lion's mane kind of associated with a nootropic effects yeah. cognitive function and Cordyceps. Yeah, uh, Paul Stamets was talking about lion's yeah. mane, like cre- uh, promotes the growth of neurons, new neurons. Regrowth, in the yeah, it's yeah. amazing, yeah. and it's unfortunate because there's not a lot of science around it, just because these things are like Eastern medicine, so yeah. it's, it's coming now. And it's hard to pat; you can't patent a mushroom. It's and, just, yeah. it's tough. Um, but I read enough where I was like, hell yeah, I'm down, and. And cordyceps is really good for, you know, physical performance and chaga, reishi, some of the most well-researched mushrooms out there. And, and so I just had, you know, 10 tubs of powders and I was dumping it into this big hydro flask and then had these chunks of chaga I was putting in there. And my friends were just like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> I'm like, it's mud. It, it wasn't, uh, there was no intention of a business. Like right. all my business endeavors have always been in the tech digital world. Uh, um, but I was drinking this and... More, more or less just kind of thought I was an anomaly. Uh, I thought everybody drank coffee. It's coffee shops on every corner. Never sparked my mind. Uh, fast forward a couple, like maybe a year, and we ended up having to, you know, close, or I had to get a job essentially because we ran through most of our investment on that project that, or the company that we were working on. And I took a job for a company called the Flex Company. Um, believe it or not, it's like a tampon alternative company. So they're a big VC-backed company looking to disrupt that space with, uh, you know, a product that's designed by a woman, which mm-hmm. is tampons designed by a man. And I was the lead designer, came on and redesigned everything from like packaging to their website and their subscription e-commerce backend. So I learned everything about delivering a physical product to a customer, but managing the experience online digitally. Right. Um, and then I was working in an office at that time, which wasn't ideal, but. Um, it was a good experience for me, um, working back in a space with other teammates, learning how to lead meetings and, and whatnot. And then in that experience, I met a lot of people that were just drinking tons of coffee. There was just like me three years prior and it's like, try this. And right before my eyes saw multiple people just kind of fall in love with what I was drinking every day. Mm. And May last year, were you still tweaking it or had you arrived at a pretty steady? I mean, every day it was different really. Cause right. I wasn't like, I wasn't making big batches every day. I was putting a spoon of this, spoon right. of that. And right. I'm pretty, like, I don't really care too much. Like if it has benefits, I'm, 
I'll drink it and I'll eat it. So some days it tasted amazing, some days it tasted questionable. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it wasn't until I turned it into a business that I kind of had to fine tune it a little bit right. to make it more palatable. But yeah, it was, you know, I was drinking that a lot. Friends were, you know, kind of drinking it, laughing about it. And then in May this year, me and my friend actually here, we put a little bit of like a microdose of psilocybin in it and just had, went out to some event and just had a really good night. And the next morning I woke up and I was just like, duh. Like, I don't know, for some reason it never hit me that I should do that. Hmm. And then it was like, you know how to do everything that you need to do to make this happen. Right. And the, there's people out there that obviously want this. And so over that weekend, like, I think that that happened on like a Saturday morning. And so I just grabbed my computer and I was just like, everything was there. I it remember. Was fascinating. I remember when that happened. Yeah. Like, I, I guess you were sending stuff to Kyle, and he showed it to me. Yeah. And we were proofreading your your copy, yeah. and and it was so fast. It, it was fast, man. It, yeah. It, it was so intuitive. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of design projects that I work on, you're working with a team. There's various levels of approval or at least opinions that are involved. And with this, it was just like, this is me. It's my drink. I'm not changing it and I don't need to ask anybody for permission, and yeah. it was this feeling of just freedom. And yeah. I, the name was there in my yeah. head. The look was there. I designed the label that it hasn't changed since yeah. that day. That's, the design's the design. amazing, and, and the then, packaging is so cool. Thank you. Yeah, and, then, and the hockey puck ones, too, that you yeah, brought the to the motherfuckers. Those are really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I launched the website the following day. Built the whole thing, and, and, and you know, I was you know there's some like tweaks that could have been made there's typos everywhere and but it was like good enough and mm -hmm. I think part of it is being comfortable with some of the chaos comfortable with failure like I was okay with it not being perfect right and you kind of need a sense of that when you're starting a company like you need to if you're putting something out that you're not slightly embarrassed about you're taking too long mm, you need good point you need to just start moving and get momentum and get learning you know kind of like what we were talking about like you're trying to find out who you are Okay, yeah, so that was uh, Shane Heath from the Mudwater Company, and I just thought it was really fun that he's got his hand in so many different uh, things. Kind of cool, but I was looking at all the different ingredients in his thing, and I was like, masala chai, I'm not really attracted to cinnamon and black pepper, so I, I think I would like to try to make a chai without cinnamon or black pepper and just have the cardamom, the cloves, um, the black tea powder. But um, yeah, it's really cool that um, he can um, find, find something that he could sell for $2 a serving. So I was looking at the, <laughs> the price. I was like, oh my goodness, that people can spend um, $30 on uh, 15 servings. But I would... Let me just see if there's a way, like, I guess if you really want, wow. It is It is amazing, though, that an herbal beverage um, could be realistically marketed for um, $2 a serving, and you still have to um, pour hot water on it. It's not like it's ready-made in a container. <laughs> but I suppose if, um, you know, in the future, if we're out and about and there is um, uh, an envelope of um, a powdered drink, that you can make or um, a sugary soda, people are going to 
um, pick the $2 sugary soda or the $2 powder drink with uh, turmeric, lion's mane, um, chaga. Wow. So they're very rich ingredients and kind of fascinating to see. I wonder how much I've been playing around with a piece of chaga for about five years now. And I picked it in upstate New York and every now and then I'll try to taste it. And it absolutely has no taste to me. I can't taste anything um, related to the chaga that I've ever tried, but I, I really enjoy the flavors of um, the other two mushrooms he was mentioning. Um, wow. Um, the other two mushrooms he, he mentioned were lion's mane and also cordyceps. So, yeah, I have a little bit of powdered cordyceps, and that is really, I find it very stimulating and um, something I probably would stay away from later in the day. But I suppose if you if you have a project that you're doing, that's another mushroom. to um, you, you, You're going to have a busy day, and you want to um, have a lot of sta stamina. Uh, cordyceps is where, where it's at. And um, I don't know, you know, the, the scale or the limit, limitability of um, cordyceps. I haven't really read too much or studied too much about it. Um, it is kind of cool that um, there's uh, cultivation systems that are available, you know, that people can make in their kitchen to cultivate their own mushrooms at home. I've been playing around with trying to cultivate mushrooms using a PF tech. And that's when you mix brown rice flour with vermiculite and you saturate it with water. And then you just put straight um, mushroom spores on this and you let it incubate in, in a, a glass canning jar. So I've been playing around with that and I got a lot less uh, contamination when I boiled the jars twice over a period of 24 hours. So that's something I wanted to report that my experiments with cultivating mushrooms seems, seems to be little by little, I'm getting more successful and I'm hoping to be able to just uh, wildcraft it and be able to just bury it in holes around my home. And then during the rainy season, I can go outside and pick mushrooms. So that's what I'm really hoping for is just um, sort of getting a permaculture set up where I have um some rich soil outside that uh, likes to grow mushrooms. And I've seen so many really cool um, systems that people have. A lot of people, they'll uh, put the mushrooms uh, underneath cardboard, saturated cardboard, and they'll just let it sit and sit and sit. And then it, they, then they eventually uh, infect everything. So cardboard really is something to think about when you're um, trying to grow mushrooms outside. And it makes you wonder that all the inks and cardboard, but it's funny that uh, as far as printing inks, uh, I use it in my worm bin. I use um, news, regular black and white newsprint and even the colored, and the worms love uh, newspaper. And it's just something that it's just so funny that um, a lot of our industrial things just are easily you know, convert it back into really healthy garden soil. Uh, I, I they're, they're forced upon me. They're, they're delivered to my house um, with junk mail. So that's something to think about if you just want a small amount of um, uh, red wiggler worms. Uh, I tell you, news, newspaper 
uh, cut into long one inch strips and then saturate it with water. It's just the ideal environment if you're trying to um, multiply your uh, worm bin, your ver vermicomposting, it, it's called. So I um, read some really, uh, another really cool thing. So I went to um, a grief class about 12 years ago after my sister died. I was completely numb and I didn't know what to do. And, um, and it was really cool that um, I found it through the local hospice group. And I was like, hey, I want to buy a textbook about like what you do. And I was like, I just want one book about grief. And could you recommend one book to me? And they recommend the, the girl, she really knew this, the, the stuff back and forth. And she was like, yeah, yeah, it's all based on this one book. And it's called um, The Nature of Grief, Grief, The Evolution Psychology of Reactions to Loss. So I thought I'd read some, but I'm going to stop. I'm going to omit all the scientific things because they, they quote, it's just like one sentence and then they quote scientists. So I'm going to read some of it without um, quoting the studies, but I'll let you know what I'm reading. So this is also a, a pretty older book. It's not, first published 1999. And I think it's pretty much all up to date that all this work has been done about the psychology and the process of grief and teaching people strategies. The one thing that I learned when I went to a grief like group, I went like once a week, I think on a Wednesday for about five weeks. And I learned strategies of dealing with grief or expressing grief or allowing grief to uh, enter my life. And it was a very life changing um, session because it was uh, about a year before my sister passed away. My mother died and all I did was just feel bad and drink my pain away. And that was my strategy for dealing with grief. And the walk away when I went to the class was there is no wrong way to grieve. Everyone grieves. Now, when people grieve in a way that's uh, ruminative, where they're um, not really uh, getting over it or in my case, I was drinking to make the pain go away and just increasing my drinking and tolerance for um, drinking. That's, you know, horrible. That um, th that wasn't wrong. It was just I didn't know the strategies. I didn't think I had any other choices of how to grieve. So it is kind of cool that there is a lot of material. And I'm telling you, um, even if someone died that it's been years, I would totally recommend you you um maybe visit your local hospice in person and talk to people and see if they have one of these weekly groups and it's um i can't recommend it more um to someone that's never done anything anything related to hospice before so it's just something i uh, i want to rally behind and let people know that hey this really helped me and um there is no wrong way to grieve, but it appears that there's wrong ways to grieve <laughs> because people don't know that there's other ways. Because I think basically people will always choose the thing that will help them if they are given that choice or if they, you know, lay it out. And I think that's the main thing that hospice will do is they'll show you all the different strategies and things. So... I guess I'll just start with this section. It's about page 115. 
from the nature of grief, and it's called The Tasks of Grief. Turn on reading light. Okay. So, no, you know what? I think I wanted to start just a little bit before that. Um, I'm going to read about resilience because I looked it up. I So, um. I'm going to begin with the, um, what they found out about um, resilience. In both cases of and the death of a child, problems of resolution arise because the per- events are particularly resistant to incorporation into the person's personal world. Ex- explanations derived from studies of traumatic stress and victimization Emphasize, emphasize difficulties caused by not being able to accept the traumatic event. Watch which, which then sets up and the the typeface of this book is a little bit hard on my eyes. Uh, it sets up an alternating cycle of uncontrollable memories and extreme avoidance. The cycle is regarded as standing in the way of assimilating and coming to terms with the event. The findings considered so far question the inevitability of the resolution of grief. At the other extreme are instances when people are resilient in the face of serious losses. Studies reviewed in the next chapter indicate that a personality characteristic involving being able to meet the consequences of a loss in a determined and optimistic way is associated with lower distress following bereavement. A related characteristic, the degree to which the person sees purpose and order in life and seeks to pursue and obtain worthwhile goals is also associated with a more positive outcome following bereavement and other major major stressors. Other reasons for resilience include strong religious beliefs provided by the family or community. Both of these were apparent in Avalon's study of the Samoan community in the west of the U.S. It appeared from respondents' accounts that they suffered less and had shorter periods of grief than did European North Americans, and that this arose from social and financial support having multiple attachments, and a fatalistic attitude to death engendered by their religion. Although one respondent was quoted as saying that Samoans did not experience grief like European Americans did, we should be cautious of this report for two reasons. First, it was made five years after the loss, at a time when most of the female respondents had remarried. Second, it is likely to be heavily influenced by what Samoans thought the Samoan reaction to grief ought to be. So other cross-cultural evidence on the shortening of the grief process is difficult to interpret. One often cited example concerns the Navajo Native Americans, among whom mourning is limited to four days. After this, the bereaved person is expected neither to show grief nor speak of the deceased or the loss. The question raised by such examples is whether grief really is resolved by these prohibitions or whether it emerges, albeit in a distorted form, at a later time. 
The original report suggested that pathological forms of grief did occur in the future, notably in the form of somatic problems and high levels of depression. However, the empirical evidence for this was unclear. Other evidence for the existence of delayed grief of this sort is mixed. Sanders, 1979, did report a pattern consistent with delayed grief in people showing compulsive optimism, interpreted as suppression of emotional reactions, whereas other studies suggest that this is rare. There is, therefore, abundant evidence of prolonged, apparently unresolved grieving and some evidence that certain coping styles and situational variables can dramatically reduce the period of grief. The cross-cultural evidence concerning whether cultural restraints on grief can be effective in shortening it was uncertain, since there remains the possibility that depressive and health-related problems surface later. Associated with the concept of grief work, okay, this section is called the tasks of grief. Associated with the concept of grief work is the idea that there are specific tasks to achieve during grieving. The best known of those are Word in 1981 and Parks and Weiss of 1983, although a third set was suggested by Vanderwaal, 1989. The tasks define endpoints, what resolutional steps on the way to resolution entails. Formally accounts grief work is the proposed means to these ends. Although the tasks are not meant to be sequential, both Word and Parks and Weiss viewed the first word first of their tasks as necessary step for the others. According to wording, it is possible to have incomplete bereavement when only one or two of the tasks have been achieved. The present discussion is confined to the two best known set of tasks, concentrating on the more straightforward three tasks suggested by Parks and Weiss, but also referring briefly to the wording's four tasks. Neither said the tasks were derived from research evidence. Those of Parks and Weiss were intended as a statement of the process of recovery. Resolution in quotes. Wordens were intended to be useful for the clinician dealing with bereaved people, and he emphasized their advantage, advantages over the, over the phase, phase view of grief. Worden's first task involves accepting the reality of the loss, overcoming any tendencies to deny it, and the second involves working through the pain of grief. These are more restatements of grief work than of endpoints to be achieved. His third and fourth tasks have more in common with those of Parks and Weiss, emphasizing a change in identity and emotional attachment from the deceased. They are more useful in specifying the endpoints of the grief. The first task suggested by Parks and Weiss is intellectual acceptance of the loss, the need to develop a satisfactory account of what has happened. This is regarded as necessary, but not sufficient for later resolution. The other two tasks involve features that specify what resolution involves. Although Parks and Weiss provided only a brief outline, other evidence indicates that intellectual acceptance of a loss is particularly difficult in three sets of circumstances. First, when there is no room for doubt that the death has occurred. For example, when no body has been found, in particular when the person is missing but presumed dead. Second, there are circumstances are such 
that someone can readily be held responsible. For example, in cases of murder, suicide, or motor vehicle crash. Third, where the circumstances are traumatic and there are vivid memories of the event that become difficult to integrate with the person's usual expectations of life. Again, occurring in the case of murder, suicide, and accidents. Constructing an acceptable account of a loss will also depend on how the person characteristically views casual events in the world. There are some empirical support for a link between better adjustment and being able to find an acceptable meaning for the loss. Uh, Reported that three months after a spousal bereavement, those older adults who viewed a search for meaning in the loss as more helpful had lower levels of greed. Among a sample of young adults who had lost a parent, those who were able to answer the questions why showed less intense grief than those unable to find an answer or who contributed the death to chance or to luck. Uh, McIntosh, 1983, reported that being able to find meaning in the sudden death of a child was associated with lower distress and higher well-being. Powers Wampol, 1994, found comparable results among the sample of older widows. Similar associations have been found following other traumatic life events. For example, among women who were incest victims during childhood and stroke patients. Oh, wait. Similar associations have been found following other traumatic life events. For example, among women who were incest victims during childhood adult survivors of sexual assault, and stroke patients. These studies all involved concurrent measures of finding meaning in adjustment or distress so that we cannot necessarily conclude that it is the lack of meaning that impedes adjustment. It could be that higher levels of distress produce difficulties finding a meaning or that both result from more intense grief. A finding by Downey, Silver, and Wartman raises the question of whether it is necessary to develop an acceptable account of the loss. 45% of the parents bereaved by sudden infant death were not concerned with attributing responsibility for the death three weeks after it happened. Attributed the death to the actions of themselves or others showed higher levels of distress, but these initial attributions did not predict the subsequent changes in distress. These findings suggest that attributional processes and distress are linked because they both reflect the overall strength of grief and the initial attributions do not predict later adjustment. In the studies reviewed above on meaning and distress, these two measures may similarly be associated because they both reflect the intensity of grief and not because inadequate accounts leads to lower distress. Okay, Parks and Weiss' second task is emotional acceptance of the loss, which is achieved when, when reminders are no longer painful and distressing. This is generally seen as the outcome of repeated confrontation with thoughts associated with the loss, i.e., grief work. And it's important to recognize that it is, in, that it is the reminders and thoughts of the deceased ceasing to be painful that is important not that the person ceases to think about the deceased. In answer to the question, what would would indicate your grief recovery has taken place? 
bereaved students mostly replied that it would be when they could think or talk about the death without getting upset. Uh, Dembo, Leviton, and Wright expressed the same point by stating that adjustment occurs when positive features from the lost relationship can be incorporated into the person's present life. And the past can be viewed with tenderness rather than pain. This implies a change in the relationship with the lost person. In other words, a redefinition of attachment rather than detachment. In a study of older widows and widowers found that the continuing tie with the deceased proved supportive in many ways. It was maintained despite a deep sense of loss and recurrent feeling of grief in the form of welcome memories and association with everyday activities which were once shared. These memories still served as a focus for care and affection toward the deceased. Moss and Moss emphasized the normality of this tie formed a nourishing link to the past. Many spiritual and religious beliefs are based on maintaining such links. For example, many spiritual and religious beliefs are based on, for example, the ancestor worship of Shintoism. They would also be encouraged and and flourishing cultures which emphasize the enduring commitment and eternal love, such as the Romantic Age of the 19th century in Britain and North America. Gowen, Verjean, and Gowen described the continuing attachment to the dead husband of two widows who were otherwise appeared both contended and normal in a psychiatric sense. In one case, the woman had married again, but still maintained an attachment to the first husband seven years after her remarriage. The other case involved a 49-year-old woman who had been widowed for six years and who was independent and gregarious. She talked to, the, to women at work as if her husband were waiting for her to come home, and she did things to please her dead husband. The crucial aspect of the second task of grief is the changed effective quality of thoughts of the deceased from negative to positive. Since the lower level of distress is the way in which adjustment is defined in many studies, fully achieving the second task of grief is, is by definition to meet one common criterion for the resolution of grief. However, some of the examples of, the, of a continuing but re, redefined attachment to the deceased do suggest that although the effective quality of the thoughts towards them have changed, the bereaved cannot be said to be detached from the deceased. Freud, <laughs> 1913, 17, viewed detachment as the endpoint of grieving. A view followed in later accounts, but not by some psychoanalytical writers who, emph who emphasize instead that identification enables a healthy representation of the deceased to occur. These different views parallel the cultural differences in the concept of adjustment discussed in, in an earlier section. The grief gaining a new identity does imply detachment from the deceased, and yet it can also be viewed as occurring side by side with the second task. It involves a change in the person's assumptions about themselves so that these fit with the new reality. The subjective sense of what a change of identity involves is well summed up in Lynn Kane's best-selling personal account of widowhood. 
But today I am someone else. I am stronger, more independent. I, I am more understanding, more sympathy, a different perspective. I have a quiet love for Martin. I have passionate, poignant memories of him. He will always be part of me. But if I were to meet Martin today, would I love him? I ask myself, startled, what brought the question to my mind? I know I ask it because I am a different woman. That's um, Lynn Kane's book from 1974. This excerpt describes both the redefinition of attachment to the deceased and gaining a new identity as having been achieved simultaneously. It, is also, it also portrays positive feelings, raising the related issues of whether bereavement can enable people to feel more positively about themselves and their place in the world. This possibility has been emphasized in connection with a wider range of life changes. Several researchers have argued that most accounts of grief have argued that most of accounts have overlooked the potential for personal growth inherent in, per, in tragic experiences. Using a rating scale derived from the ways bereaved people talked about their experiences, Hogan found a group of attributes representing personal growth, for example, a positive outlook on life, becoming more tolerant, more compassionate, and optimistic. Positive features were also common in interviews undertaken um, by Kessler, for example, new freedoms, reaffirming re religious faith, enriching the value of life in the present, and focusing on the future. Again, these were viewed as signs of personal growth. Similarly, most of the sample of college students who had experienced the death of a parent found positive aspects in the experience which helped their personal development. Most of another sample of students bereaved over the past three years said that they had experienced a positive change in their life goals. These positive changes occurred alongside the ne negative aspects of grief, and they could be linked with the gradual change in identity, which Parks and Weiss identified as the ter third task of grief. There are, however, some other findings that question whether such positive changes are connected with adjustment measured by lack of distress and negative emotions. Uh, Lehman found that people who had lost a spouse or child in a motor vehicle crash four to seven years before generally reported more positive than negative life changes. Um, increased self-confidence was the most common category in about a third. Others involved enjoyed focusing on the present and a greater appreciation of life about a quarter of each. In this study, the numbers of positive changes a person reported were unrelated both to their adjustment and psychological symptoms. Positive changes were also unrelated to either positive or negative emotions, suggesting that the positive emotions sometimes reported in studies of bereavement are different from the experience of positive life changes. In contrast to these findings, there is a widespread assumption that changes in identity and meaning in life represent an integrable part of the resolution of grief. It is inherent in the tasks of grief and in, and in accounts based on these. Viewed losses as forcing people to rethink beliefs about themselves and the world. 
a process that is achieved by constructing a series of accounts which gradually provide the loss with meaning and produce a changed viewpoint of the self and, and the world. Yet Lehman 1993 found that measures that can reasonably said to reflect the outcome of such a process were not related to the usual measures of adjustment. and the world may not be essential to the lessening of emotional stress as is widely assumed. Overall, assessing the three tasks of grief has proved to be difficult. Although concurrent measures indicate that the forming of an acceptable account was associated with less distress and greater adjustment, evidence from the only longitudinal Longitudinal studies suggest that the initial attributions to an unacceptable source do not, in fact, predict greater distresses in the long term. The second task, emotional acceptance of loss, involved a change in affective quality associated with the thoughts of the deceased. In this sense, it represented a form of attachment to the memory of the deceased, which is no longer painful. Since adjustment following grief is often assessed by the degree of emotional distress, achieving this must by definition involve adjustment. Accompanying the decline in distress and in many accounts central to achieving this are changes in the person's view of him or herself and the world. Although there is evidence that the positive thoughts likely to be associated with such, process, with such a process do occur during grieving, the, the one perspective study found that they did not predict lowered distress. <laughs> so I'm hoping my mic is working and I'm still being heard. <laughs> it's funny, my um, computer, um, I, I read for so long that my computer uh, screensaver went on. <laughs> so it's looking like we've got about 25 minutes left of the show. I'm going to uh, take a short break. I'll come back. I'll talk about my dreams of uh, being a light deprivation uh, gardener slash farmer.
Okay, so yeah, I, so I read this long intellectual <laughs> essay about the tasks of grief, and um, it's funny that there's really like the takeaway is there's all these different ways that people can grieve, and there really is no way that you could say that one is wrong, one will make you feel better than faster, it, and there's just no rhyme or reason to it, and there are no rules that, oh, this is going to make you feel better uh, faster, and this will uh, resolve your feelings, and it, I thought it was really cool, too, how they talked about um, the person who was holding on to the memory of her husband, who did not remarry, appeared to be a lot happier and, and less in pain <laughs> that, you know, that, um, then the woman that remarried and, um, it, it, you know, the professional life and personal goals and all that stuff improved and still experienced a lot of discomfort. Um, just like, wow, you know, there's just like no rhyme or reason and how, um, applying meaning and our religious beliefs all come into play and um, really amazing stuff that I can't say what works for me will work for you. And, um, but it is kind of cool to go to a class and hear maybe 10, 20, 30 different people talk about their strategies and their process. And so I just wanted to let anyone know that, um, you know, if you're in a lot of pain because from a loss that, um, being around other people and maybe just listening to them. And a lot of these classes, they don't require you to talk much. Um, it's just amazing to hear other people um, talk and um, you can find ourselves other people's stories. So I guess the last thing I'm really interested in is I want to start some gardens and I really want to um, grow high CBD cannabis. So I'm playing around with different uh, seeds that are very dependable. Months. So I'm playing with light depth gardening and that's sometimes it's done outside and sometimes it's done inside with uh, using grow lights or uh, pulling the plants inside during the dark cycle. And this will keep um, some of the CBD rich plants only require 40 days of, um, short, of shortened days to be able to fully mature. So um, it's about um, if you want a, a real big garden, you could just grow one big garden all year round, or maybe you can grow two or three small gardens throughout the year. So I think it's a lot more fun to grow two or three small gardens and maybe one big garden. So that that's what really is attracting me to light depth gardening is, um, especially with the way my local um, uh, laws um prohibit me from growing um, more than 10 plants at a time. So I can grow 10 plants that will um, take 10 months to grow, or I can grow 10 plants every uh, three months. Um, so that's maybe that's what's uh, guiding me toward the light depth, but also just um, I like being able to um, do it in small bites and um, instead of having all that work all at once. So that, those are some of the things. If you want to um, Google it yourself, uh, talk, look up light depth gardening, light deprivation gardening, and um, tell me what you find out about. Um, I'm looking forward to building something for myself. Uh, 
around this concept in the coming future. If you want to communicate with me, I'm at the people, people's medicine show at gmail.com till next month or probably in July, because I am going to be traveling uh, during the month of June. So I plan to be at the IHS, which is in Massachusetts. That's the International Herbal Symposium. I also want to go on some wild crafting trips. So if you want to uh, contact me by email, please do. And maybe we can uh, meet up in June in the upstate New York, Massachusetts area. And we can harvest yarrow and motherwort and St. John's wort and yellow dock. And there's probably more plants that we'll find. We'll probably find some linden trees. So please uh, contact me. Maybe we'll all have a, a, a plant foray and we'll um, hang out together. So th that's one of the reasons I do this show. I'm out there to find the others. So please call me. Um, I, I have a Facebook account and, or you can just shoot me an email with your contact information people's medicine show at gmail.com and uh, people's medicine is everybody's medicine and um, go go with your gut um, tr trust yourself uh, you know it's right so I'm going to end the show bye bye <laughs>